Okay, well, good morning, everybody. This morning we're actually continuing our study in, into the book of Romans, and we're up to chapter 5, or halfway through chapter 5 today. And I'm just going to ask us, we might just pray in order that God will open our minds and open my mouth as we speak today and learn from here. So let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we would ask that today you would be our teacher. We pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding in your word. And we ask, Lord, that we be able to go from this place, putting it into practice, what we learn today. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you that we have the word of God to study together. And we pray that you would enlighten our minds and our spirits and help us to put into practice, as we've already prayed, Lord, um, today as we go out into this world. Because we ask it in Jesus' name. Well, the book of Romans, as you're probably aware, is not some sort of a book that you can... Um, it's not like a romantic novel or, or even a mystery story that you can read on a lazy Sunday afternoon and, and kind of mull over in your mind and fantasise about the story. You probably already discovered that, I would think. And for me, at least, the reading of uh, Romans is like wading through a legal document. And it takes a lot of concentration, doesn't it, to understand? And for someone like me who's not really wide with a legal mind, I've got to really think about what Paul is saying here uh, in this book. But that wasn't what it's like with Martin Luther. Um, we've, we've all know about Martin Luther, I, I think. He was a student of law, and he actually revelled in uh, studying and reading through this, this book here. And, and even though I don't have a lawyer's mind like Martin Luther, as I've studied through this particular passage in the last few weeks, I got excited about what I've learned, and I want to share with you today and hope that you'll get excited about what we learn from the passage today as well. You know, Martin Luther was actually tormented in his mind and, and in his body as he relentlessly disciplined himself in the hope that God would actually finally accept him because he was good enough to be, to be accepted in God's sight. And so in order to please God, he practised self-denial. He deprived himself of many things. He, he went without blankets at night. He, he went without food. He did all sorts of things in that sort of way in order to be able to please God. You know, many religions today are similar to that, aren't they? You think about the Muslims, that they would be required to go once a year to Mecca in order to worship. Or think about the Hindus who would go down to the River Ganges in order to wash away their sins. And then there's even the so-called Christian cults who work hard in, in um, studying the scriptures, going door knocking and also um, in, in actually paying for themselves uh, literature to be able to give away in order to earn their salvation. Well, that's how it was like with Martin Luther. His soul was tormented relentlessly after his search for God. On one occasion, he actually narrowly missed being hit by lightning, which frightened him so much 
that it changed the course of his life. And he began to uh, a pursuit for God. And in his pursuit for God, it was so intense that he entered the priesthood. He became a monk. And because he thought religious lifestyle would actually bring him closer to God. And it was through his intense search for God that he immersed himself in the study of the Book of Romans. And although his study, all through his study, his life was dramatically transformed because he discovered in Romans the grace of God, that it was not works that gave him favour of God, but it was through Jesus and what Jesus had done. So the effects of Martin Luther's discovery affected Germany 500 years ago, and it still affects many parts of the world today in that evangelical movement um, as part of, of Martin Luther's uh, intense study of the Book of Romans. So the passage before us is one of the most, I think, difficult sections of the book. I don't know if I'd known before I put my hand to preach, I might sort of pass this one on to someone else. But, um, you know, if you read the King, if you read Romans in the King James Version, unless you've got a mind wide in that way, you might find it a little bit difficult in some of the older translations. And, and I'm very grateful for some of the more modern translations that will actually give clarity on the passages that we're going to be looking at today. You know, I'm really pleased that um, the Apostle Peter, in his second book, in chapter 3 and verse 16, he said, our dear, Paul, our dear brother Paul wrote some things that are hard to understand. And I think it might be one of these passages as well. So I'm grateful that um, Peter wrote that anyway. It makes me feel a bit more comfortable. So with the, hope of the help of the Holy Spirit, we're going to be blessed in our study of this passage before us today. So Romans 5, uh, 12 to 21. It's actually divided into two sections, verses 12 to 14 and then verses 15 to 21. I'm going to read even... I'm going to read the, these passages, this, those, those first few verses, out of the King James Version. Verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin in the world, for unto the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed. Imputed just simply means uh, not taken into account. So sin's not taken into account when there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So here in these verses, in verse 12 to 14, we see the entrance of sin into the, one man, into the world by one man, and that man, man was Adam, and his sin resulted in death. So notice the progression here. In verse 12, it says sin entered through one man, and then sin spread to all men. And again, in verse 14, death reigned over all men. So we've got death entered, death spread, and death reigned. But in verses 15 to 21, we see the entrance, not of sin, but the entrance of grace into the world by one man, and that resulted in eternal life, not death. So the entrance of sin resulted in death, 
But the entrance of grace resulted in life, and that's eternal life. And the analogy that we find here between Adam and Christ is actually a direct contrast to each other. Adam's one act brought sin, it brought death, it brought condemnation, but Jesus' one act brought righteousness and justification and life. So in verse 14, Paul names Adam as being the first man. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because we know that Adam was the first created man. And so uh, not long afterwards, God saw that Adam was lonely. He needed a mate like all the other creation. And so God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. He anaesthetised him. And while he was asleep, he took a rib out of Adam's side. And with that rib, he created Eve. And Paul says in verse 12 that it was through Adam that sin entered the world. We understand that, don't we? What was the sin that Adam committed? Well, it was disobedience. God told Adam that he must not eat the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. What did he do? He disobeyed God. But if you look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, you'll actually discover that it was Eve that sinned first, not Adam. So she goes, she was the one who ate the fruit first and then she gave it to Adam. And so why does Adam get the blame? It's a question that came to my mind. If it was Eve that, that actually ate the fruit first, how come Adam cops it? Well, it's interesting because Adam passed the buck to Eve. Well, she's the one who gave it to me. Not wanting to shoulder the blame, Eve... Eve um, Blame the key accused the serpent. Well, he's the one who tricked me. So Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. And what? The serpent didn't have a leg to stand on, did he? So. <laughs> but still the question remains, why did Adam have to shoulder the blame? Why did he have to shoulder the blame? Well, firstly, if you check out Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16 to 17, you'll discover that it was Adam that God commanded not to eat the fruit, not Eve. Why was that? Well, simply because Eve wasn't created yet. She wasn't there. So God told Adam that he wasn't <clears throat> to uh, eat that fruit. And secondly, God made Adam responsible for everything. And therefore, he was answerable to God for everything and everyone, including Eve. You know, it's just like the CEO of a company has to accept the, the blame for the mistakes of the organisation. So as the head of creation, Adam was answerable to God and must therefore accept responsibility for all of God's creation. Well, I don't think Alan Joyce um, read this about Qantas, but... It's true. He should re accept responsibility. And also because of Eve's disobedience, God told her in Genesis 3.16, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So people ask the question, well, was it fair for God to condemn the whole world just because of Adam's sin? Was that fair? Well, think of it this way. Many times when I've been pulling out weeds in the garden and grumbling about Adam, 
you know, because the weeds are there because of Adam's sin. So, you know, there's times where I felt like punching him out. But when I think more about it, uh, you know, I realised the more I thought about it, that I would have done exactly the same thing. In fact, I have sinned and sinned and sinned and sinned time and time again. So the answer is, not only was it fair for God to judge the whole world for Adam's sin, but it was also the right thing to do. You see, if God had tested each one of us individually the same way as he tested Adam, the result would have been exactly the same, wouldn't it? Exactly the same. We would have all disobeyed God, just like Adam did. So therefore, we mustn't blame him. You know, once Adam sinned and broke fellowship with God, there was no way back. There was absolutely no way back. There was nothing that Adam could do to restore that fellowship. But God could. And God did. And he made a way back to God through Jesus Christ. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 22, As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. God made that way back through Jesus. So by condemning the whole human race through one man, Adam, God was then able to offer salvation to the whole human race through one man, Jesus Christ. So in verse 12, it tells us that sin entered the world through one man and the punishment of sin was death. Remember, God told Adam, if you eat the fruit, you will die. And because every one of us has sinned, just as Adam did, we will all suffer the same consequences, which is death. Now, in verse 13 and 14, Paul argues that sin was in the world before the law. And, of course, he's here referring to the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. And as we know, God didn't deliver the Ten Commandments to Moses until many centuries after Adam was alive, after he was created. But the same consequence for sinning, which is death, applied to everybody who has lived, right from Adam right through to Moses, even though there was no written law to disobey. And this is where Moses, who received the law from God on Sinai, fits in. You know, if there's no law, you can't break it, can you? Therefore, you can't be found guilty. It's like um, in parts of the Northern Territory where Julie and I um, travelled a couple of years ago, there's an open speed limit. So you can go 200 kilometres an hour if you want and you won't get picked up for breaking the law because there's no law that says you can't do that. What might happen is that you might get picked up by, for reckless driving and so on and hand, uh, for dangerous driving because there is a law against that. But there's no law against speeding because it's just not there, so you can't pick it up. Now, verse 15 says, The gift is not like the trespass. So what's the gift he's talking about here? Is it a birthday present? Is it a Christmas present? No, because if you look at verse 16, where Paul goes further and he calls it the gift of God. So what's the gift of God? Yeah, exactly right. Chapter 6, verse 23, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the gift of eternal life is so much better than any physical gift that we might be given, isn't it? 
It's something that lasts forever. Now, in verse 17, I'm just going to read verse 17 in the NIV again. It says, For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through this one man, Jesus Christ? <clears throat> if one man's sin makes us all sinners, then one man's righteousness can make us all righteous, right? Stands to reason. And if you can't accept that you're a sinner because of Adam's sin, then you can never be made righteous because of God's righteousness. So isn't it great that God holds out an olive branch to all of us? and says, if you come to me through Jesus, my righteous one, I will give you righteousness life now in verse 19 it says for just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous in effect what it's saying here is that if you're a sinner then you need a saviour and Jesus is a saviour and that's so important to understand that we recognise we're all offended God we're all sinners Therefore, we all need a saviour. When we pastored the Ulladulla Church, uh, for eight, eight of those years that I was down in Ulladulla, I was a chaplain for state emergency services. And the controller of uh, the company down there for about four of the eight years that I was there was a delightful fellow by the name of Bill. And Bill was a high school uh, teacher he had the students actually eating out of his hand. Why? Because he respected them. And in return, they, expected, they respected him. And Bill often told me that there's some good in everybody. And being a high school teacher, I wondered about that. And I have to admit that I thought, well, there's not much good in some of those high school kids. But perhaps he was right. The Bible tells us that at our core, all human beings are sinners and in need of saving. There's a theological term in Calvinism that's called the total depravity of mankind, which is mankind's natural state. You don't have to teach a baby to do the wrong thing, just naturally knows how to do it. And so our family a couple of weeks ago was COVID positive. But there are lots of other people who weren't. But at the same time, the every human being is S-I-N positive. Whether we like it or not, we're all depraved. The Bible teaches us that. And Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So who can know the human heart? Well, Jeremiah 17.10 gives us the answer. I, the Lord, search the heart and I know the mind. So God himself knows how rotten at the core the human heart is. And sadly, my friend Bill could never accept that. We could never accept that we're all sinners in need of a saviour. And it's not unless, until we realise that our sin separates us from God that we can ever be saved. As I said before, if Adam's sin can make us all sinners, then Jesus' righteousness can make us all righteous.
And the question is, have you accepted that gift of righteousness that comes from God himself? It's available to all, but have we actually reached out to take it? So what does verse 20 and 21 mean? It says, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. You know, the law of Moses didn't come in order to make us righteous. God didn't say that if you keep the law, you'll, you'll measure up to my standard. Because he knew that we're all sinners by nature. He knew that we would all rebel against the law. But what happens is that the law actually shows us how utterly sinful we are. Well, we know, we all know that the ten, what the Ten Commandments say. We all know that we haven't kept some of them, or maybe all of them, or maybe none of them. Don't know. But even if we failed only in one of them, then we're still guilty of deserving God's punishment. We all need a saviour. And that's why God sent his righteous son to save us, because there was no other way. Now, in verse 15, 17, and also 20, they all contain this little phrase, how much more? How much more? Or all the more. So verse 20 is the pinnacle, I think, of the whole of this passage here, that God's grace and God's gift is so much more. So much more. It's super abounded. It overflowed to us. And that would be the title of today's Bible study if I was giving it a heading uh, instead of life in Christ. I'd call it God's gift of grace. There's so much more. So much more. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was called the Prince of Preachers and he once preached an entire sermon on this one verse and he called it grace abounding over abounding sin. Grace abounding over abounding sin. That's a pretty good title too, isn't it? You know, if you think of it, it, it was unfair that the whole of the human race was punished because of one man's sin. Have you considered just how unfair it was that one man, Jesus, was punished for the whole of the human race? Puts a different perspective on it, doesn't it? Particularly when he never sinned. So why did he do it? <coughs> Only because he thought we were worship, worth it. There's an old chorus that goes like this. There's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There's a door that is open and you may go in. At Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. Friends, salvation is a free gift. It's a gift that you can't buy, you can't earn it, you can only receive it. And I don't know anybody here really, I mean, I think this is only our sixth time that we've actually been able to come and have fellowship with you guys here as newcomers, but I do know this, that there are many people all over the world who have attended church all their lives. They've taught Sunday school, they've helped out in so many different ways but they've never received the gift of eternal life. They've never been born again. Perhaps that's you. As I said, I don't know you, but perhaps that's you. 
And if that's the case, then I want you to listen carefully. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he said, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. Does that describe you? Have you been born again? Are you a child of God? Are you sure about it? Are you certain that you're covered by Jesus' righteousness? That's what counts. Not relying on your own good works, outweighing your bad deeds on God's scale. Have you received that gift of eternal life? If you're not sure, and if you're not sure that you're heading for heaven, if you're not certain that you're saved, I want to encourage you to be sure because this affects your eternal destiny upon that question, the answer. So it's an amazing concept that on the cross, God transferred our sins onto Christ to forgive us. And I love the, um, new, the uh, living, version, living Bible version of uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, God took the sinless Christ and poured into him our sin. And then he poured our righteous, then he poured God's righteousness into us. So as a result of Jesus' sacrifice, he now offers Christ's standing to us as a free gift so that we might be reconciled to God, complete, declared righteous in his sight. And another way of saying that is, well, God justifies the sinner who comes to him in sincere repentance. And it's by God's grace alone that we can be saved. If you don't know for sure that you are saved, then please see someone that you know is here in this congregation. Or see me. I've actually got little booklets here somewhere. Yep, Steps to Peace with God. You're welcome to take one of these. And that will help you to know that you are, that you are saved. You know, as we come to the conclusion of this part of the service. So I want to read to you the words of our concluding hymn. You've got it on a, a piece of paper there because we haven't got any electricity today so we've printed that one out for you. And it's, I just want to read the words to you because it really sums up, I think, the whole of what we've been talking about today, about God's marvellous grace. This is the words, marvellous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Thanks, Natalie.